go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to have you here. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about the four worlds or four realms, which is a very important topic in Kabbalah. It's one of the, I would say, it's one of the classic Kabbalistic themes that comes up almost in every text, maybe even multiple times. And it's such an essential Kabbalistic idea that it really, it's really important that we get it solid and that we have it as a frame of reference. And of course, it's going to, in today's, we're starting Discourse 19, Chapter 1, in today's conversation, this is like the core of, of the idea. Um, all right, so let's talk about the four worlds. Kabbalah speaks of various realms that exist in the universe. Now, when I talk about realms in the universe, I don't mean physical planets. I'm not talking about physical, physical space. What we're talking about, of course, are spiritual dimensions because Kabbalah speaks of the spiritual reality. You know, when you, without Kabbalah, you would think that, you know, from a Jewish perspective, from a spiritual perspective, you would think that there's God and there's us. Or God created the world. So there's God and there's us. That's kind of the way it's, it's flattened, so to speak, in just, you know, very, very simplistic ways of understanding. But you study Kabbalah, and Kabbalah reveals other dimensions. Kabbalah says, slow down. It's not just God and the, and the world. There are multiple worlds, and each world has a whole reality unto itself. We're talking about, you know, each world has um, energies and and creatures and beings, you know, there's so many things. Hey, Ed, good morning. Good to see you. So every, every world has its own, like, it's a whole structure. It's a whole, it's a whole reality. And every world, as I wrote in the email last night, every world is in parallel to each other. Yeah, here you go. It's a new text. So um, every world is in parallel to each other, which means, that bagel looks good, well done. Not going to lie. Um, that what exists in one realm is actually um, mirrored or manifest in, in another realm just on a different level. Does that make sense? Does, that, does any of that make sense? In other words, it's not like you have four different worlds that are completely like different things going on in each world, but rather it's kind of like, you know, if somebody gives you an analogy, it's like they're explaining an idea and it's a lofty idea. So they're like, okay, let me tell you a story. Let me give you an analogy. And then they share the concept in an analogy. It's not like there's the idea and then there's the analogy and those are two different realities. No. The idea is the same idea in the analogy. It's just packaged in different language. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sort of? At the core, it's one shared reality? Yes. At the core, it's the same thing just unfolding in on a different level or what we would call actually on a lower level. Because think about it. What's an analogy? And literally, by the way, just to get a little bit meta here, the process that I'm doing here is an analogy about an analogy. I'm using an analogy as an analogy. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Right. We're talking about taking an idea and like, and, or seeing a thing unfold on multiple levels, and the analogy that I'm giving is an analogy. Whatever. Anyway, so, the point, so it, it, our sages tell us that King Solomon was so wise that he was able to give 3,000 parables for a single concept. And Kabbalah discusses this and says, so what's the greatness of King Solomon? We have 3,000 stories. It's like, wonderful. He was a great storyteller. He could tell you the story, you know, let's say the, the, the moral, the, um, the idea, let, let's, 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 let's choose a concept and let's go with it. So the concept that I want to go with is um, not becoming overconfident. Let's say that's a theme that you want to convey to a child or to a student or to a human being. Don't be, so, don't be too overconfident. And the parable that you're going to use is, what was it, the tortoise and the hare? Remember that story? Right, the tortoise and the hare. And the hare. So there's a race, 
and there's like the, the hare is like a rabbit, so it's really fast or faster than the tortoise and gets a huge lead. And before crossing the finish line, I, it's been a while since I read this book, but from what I, my recollection is that the, that the hare goes to sleep, I think. Yeah, just takes a break, goes to sleep. And in the meantime, the tortoise, slow but steady, keeps on, you know, keeps on running, keeps on moving. And at the end of the day, crosses the finish line first. What's the moral of the story? Actually, there's a few morals of the story. Number one, don't be too overconfident. Don't, don't take your foot off the accelerator, so to speak. Um, and also, you know what? Slow and steady wins the race. So these are all wonderful, these are all wonderful values. Really beautiful values. Great. And you just conveyed it to a child in the form of a story. Wonderful. So instead of giving them an abstract concept of, you know, um, don't be too overconfident, the child says, don't be too over. Like, what does that even mean? Here's a practical example. You're ahead in the race, and instead of finishing, you kind of stop, and then the other one ends up getting there. Or, or, or slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. Those words don't even register for a six-year-old. Slow and steady wins the race. What does that even mean? Tell it to the Falcons. Tell to the... Ay, 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 All right, let me... Donna, the ultimate, yeah. Tell it to the Falcons, exactly. 28, 100, trust me, I, we're right. Anyone in Atlanta, from Atlanta, knows exactly where I'm at. 28-3. Yes, 28-3, Super Bowl a few years ago. Yes, that was a very sad moment. I'm telling you, that night, there was a Fabrengen at the old Chabad. It was the night of Yud Shvat, which is a very special day on the calendar, on the Hasidic calendar. And, you know, the game, it was... It was probably 23, or maybe like they had scored another, you know, the, the Patriots scored something. Uh, you come back a little bit, and then we went to the Fabrengen, and then like the word started leaking into the Fabrengen that this thing was not looking well. Like, how is that even possible? It's not even possible. But never uh, count Tom Brady out, even after he retires, apparently. Never, <laughs> literally, never count him out. There's always a second chance. Which, by the way, is also an idea. It's also a teaching, right? Nishta came for a foul, and there's always a second chance. So, so how do you communicate that to a child, right? There's always a second chance. How do you communicate that? Hey, good to see you. Good morning. So a great way is, again, in a story and in a parable. But again, let, let's talk about, let's analyze the parable. Let's analyze the story itself. Not, a, not necessarily a specific one, but the concept. The concept is you're taking an idea. Great to see you, Susan. You take an idea and you bring it down into a more concretized, into a more tangible, a more... Um, ready-to-digest way by expressing it as a story. So you have the idea as it is purely, and then you have the story, and, and, and the idea is like lofty. It's, it's like up here. The story is all the way down here. So if you're communicating to a six-year-old child, you tell... Okay, Susan, in the classroom, do you use analogies and parables and stories? Always. All the time. Always. All the time. Okay, so here we have a, li a live teacher, right... So why, why do you use a story? Um, Not to put you on the spot well, or anything. I think, first of all, our brains are just wired for stories. I, you know, I, we I love hearing stories. That kids remember the stories. Um, but then it just it connects to something that, that they're familiar with. It's familiar. It's, they get it. They, get they can it. relate to it. Exactly. Beautiful. And then you launch from there. And then you go from there. Now, so, so here's the point. A good story conveys the concept but in more, ex more relatable, tangible, exciting, interactive terms. So it's not, so here's, here's the, the, the connection to our spiritual concept. 
Actually, before we get to the spiritual concept, let's, let's, stick, let's stick with this for a second. So it's not that you have two different worlds or two completely different realities. There's the concept and the story. No, it's the concept is what drives the story or the concept is manifest in the story or the concept is really what the story is about, right? The story conveys the concept. So you have, if you want to think about it this way, you have a concept that exists in multiple dimensions in its pure, I would call it... Um, pure form stripped of any application or any um, identification. So it's just a pure concept that's very theoretical. And then you have the concept as it exists with layers of garments, not physical, but conceptual garments on top of it that kind of fit into a narrative, fit into a story, fit into a parable. And then it's more accessible. It's more, it's more, it's more tangible. It's more concrete. Yes? It's the same concept that exists on multiple levels. So getting back to King Solomon. So our sages say that King Solomon was able to give 3,000 parables for one concept. And so Kabbalah asked the question, what, three? He can tell 3,000 3, different stories. One with a tortoise and a hare. The other one with a snail and a cheetah. The, it's the same story 3,000 times. No, he brought, he was able to take a concept and bring it down, obviously not, not literally, but bring it down 3,000 levels of comprehension. He was able to explain it on 3,000 different levels of understanding to bring it down even to the, in the most simple way. So a master teacher is someone who can take a concept that's very lofty, very abstract, and bring it down in an accessible way even to a small child, to a simple student. That's a master educator. Now, there are those very wise people who can speak to, you know, PhD, graduate students, high-level, you know, science, physics, philosophy, mathematics, on that level. That's a, that's a very smart teacher and very wise and bright professor. Then you have, huh? Oh, sorry, thank you. <laughs> right. So you, you have that level. But then you have, that's a, that's a smart teacher. Then you have a truly a master teacher, somebody who could take that level of, of brilliance and bring it down even to the small child or the simple student. You know, there's a platform called Masterclass. Anybody familiar with Masterclass platform? Uh, no, no, it's, a, it's actually a Jewish guy who started it. His, I wanna say his grandmother was a survivor and basically like what she told him is that the one thing that no one can take away from you or the one thing that you always own forever is education. Such a powerful, like, and it's just, like, um, shaped his life in a really powerful way. And he dedicated himself to creating this platform. I mean, it's a for-profit platform called Masterclass, where essentially um, they get the best and the brightest in many different fields. And they give um, their Masterclass, a series of classes, short classes, on a topic. So you'll have, um, uh, like... Uh, Steph Curry, the basketball player, telling you how to shoot a basketball. You'll have um, like a great chef telling you how to cook. They have multiple chefs telling you, you know. They, so you have like, imagine like, like, fam like famous people. The one knock against Masterclass is that sometimes they get people that are very good at what they do, but maybe not necessarily proficient in teaching and communicating it, which is where, which is actually what I, the point of why I'm saying this. Because really, what, what, an, what the ultimate masterclass is, getting someone who's the top of that field 
being able to explain it to someone who's a complete novice. To explain it to someone who's on that level already means that you're very smart and you're able to communicate with somebody, you know, a colleague or someone on that, on that level or, or more or less in that realm. But to take a concept, you know, a lofty concept, a deep concept, a difficult concept, or a different, difficult skill, whatever, and break it down, that's something masterful. So one example before, before you go is John Madden. Again, I'm using, we're using sports analogies here, but John Madden was a former, I mean, a prolific coach, a very uh, you know, famous coach for the um, Oakland Raiders. And then he was a sports, uh, a football comment, a color commentator. And he was like top of his field, you know, like everyone knows that Madden, the, 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 the game, the football game that everyone plays is called Madden. You know, every year they come out with a new Madden. And one thing about Madden, he passed away a few months ago. One thing about him, when you listen to like recordings and broadcasts, and I remember him back in the day, but you know, like memory is, you know, can't remember exactly what he said. But you, I, I, like I, I was watching a few YouTube clips of him, like, you know, after he passed away, just to kind of refresh my memory and just, you know, kind of pay, pay tribute to him. And he takes complex football concepts that other people, like, would, like, I would get lost if someone else would explain it. The guy had a way of explaining it, like, in such a simple way. He was such a communicator. That's why people, that's why people gravitated toward him. Because he could take, you know, kind of complicated schemes, offensive, defensive schemes, complex, relatively complex schemes, and break it down to the layperson, to the casual or not so casual football fan, without, you know, having that locker room experience, someone who's never played professionally, never coached or been coached, and could totally get it. That's a master communicator, someone who could take a, a big idea and bring it all the way down. But the point is, all of this is just an analogy of what is happening on a spiritual level with the four worlds. So again, before Kabbalah, we might have thought that it's God and the world, right? God creates the world, so there's God, and then there's us. And that's it, nothing in between. Kabbalah tells us, no, it's not so simple. You have multiple dimensions. Now, the truth is, there are more than four worlds. Kabbalah says there are myriad worlds. There are worlds, ain sof, almost an infinite number of worlds. But they're divided in four general categories. This is something that we've spoken about many times before, but it's important, again, as a, as a cornerstone or as a keystone in Kabbalah, it's important that we constantly refresh it because when you study Kabbalah, Kabbalistic texts, it keeps on coming up. So clearly, it's something that we have to keep on reminding ourselves of and understanding. And every time we turn it over, we discover something a little bit new. So there are four worlds. In Hebrew, they are Atzilut, Berea, Yitzira, and Asiya, the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, and the world of action. And as I said at the top of this class, it's not that these four worlds exist in completely different spaces, conceptual spaces, but rather they're part of the same continuum, which means that they are parallel to each other. Just like the abstract concept and the analogy are not in two different spaces, but are actually unfolding the same concept, the four worlds are also unfolding the same reality. So the reality that exists in the world of emanation becomes a little bit more expressed and manifest and concretized in the world of creation, which then becomes more manifest and concretized in the world of um, creation and formation, which becomes more manifest and concretized in the world of action. The world of action has two parts to it. 
and it ultimately becomes manifest in an absolutely fully concrete fashion in this world, the physical world of Asiya, the physical world of action. But again, the main idea here is that it's the same concept or the same reality that is unfolding successively or evolving or actually devolving successively throughout these four realms. The, the best, one of the best ways to understand this is in the context of creativity. And this is, again, something we've spoken about many times before, but it's, it's, these are concepts. I, let me take a half step back about what I'm, what I'm about to say. Um, there's a famous teaching that says the Kabbalists used to repeat ideas, mystical ideas, from time to time to, number one, ingrain it in their students, but also, number two, to purify the environment. When the environment needed, you know, sort of like ideas, so it, it, it's good to, 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 to dust off an idea and bring it back out there. Certainly, I'm not saying that I recognize that this is what the world or what we all need to hear, but certainly there's nothing, it's a good thing to hear concepts that we might have heard before and, and, and turn it over in a bit of a different way. So when it comes to creativity, things exist among multiple levels. The first, the first flash of creativity is as of yet undefined. That's the nature of creativity. The first creative flash is not yet defined. It's not yet concretized. It's almost, a, it's almost an unformed desire or, or unarticulated desire. It's I want to do something creative or I want something. It's like almost a feeling more than even an idea. And I don't mean it's an emotion, but it's kind of like a sense. Inspiration. It's an inspiration. In, in cartoons and comics, it's indicated by a light bulb going off. Right? There's like a light bulb going off. And at that stage of creativity, um, if somebody asks you, like, oh, what light bulb went off? Like, what, what is the idea? You would say, I have no idea yet. Like, I, I really don't know. There's no, it's not yet defined. It's just, I, it's just, I know that I've had some creative inspiration. Right? There's some sort of creative flash that has gone off. And then it becomes more concretized. So the creative flash goes from a flash of abstract inspiration to something a little bit more defined. And then that becomes more defined, and then it becomes more defined. So to reverse engineer this, when you see a work of art, and we actually have some art around this room, um, which is kind of cool. So when you look at a work of art, you're seeing the end result of someone's inspiration. Right? You're seeing the very final step of a person's inspiration. You're seeing the Asiya Hagashmis, which is the uh, Kabbalistic way of saying the physical world of action. You're seeing the physical, concrete form of a person's creative vision. So they started off with an idea of, I want to create something. What do you want to create? I, I want to create something. I'm in a creative mood. Okay, that's great. And then the question is going to be, okay, so I want to create. What do I want to create? And how am I going to create it? Am I going to create it with paint, right? With jewelry, with metal, right? What medium am I going to use? These are all like core questions or paper, right? Um, like what are we, Marianne, I think we uh, attended a paper, right? A paper exhibit in, uh, in a, by Georgia Tech years ago. And it, yeah, so, so like... When, when, it, when, when, we, when we talk about art, right, so the, what you see, you know, when you go to a gallery, when you go to an, a, a, an exhibit, what you see is the, 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 the final step of a process that began all the way back in, in, a, in a 
very abstract way. It was super abstract. I mean, think about it. And we, even if you don't consider yourself an artist, right? Because you know, some of us consider ourselves artists and some of us, oh, I'm not an artist. But even if you're not an artist, you're still creative. Everyone has, everyone has creativity. It just manifests in different ways. The easy way, at least for me to explain this, the easy way is to look at actual art and say, look, what you see is the end result of a long process. But in truth, it's in everywhere. You have an idea. You know, when you're communicating in conversation, you have, you're like, oh, let me tell you something I've been thinking about. And you begin to tell your friend some idea that you've been working on. Okay, that communication, that idea that you're sharing, started off in your mind in a, in a more abstract way. And you thought about it and you formalized it and you, right, you, 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 you tossed it around a little bit and, and you, got some, you, 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 you got some more language, more, more focus, and then you presented the idea to your friend and now it's a fully fledged, fully formed idea that started as a kind of nebulous or an, un, an, an unformed idea. We talk about creating a business, same thing. You have an idea for a business. An idea, you know, I want, I want to start a business. Okay, I want to start a business. What kind of business? What is it going to look like? What is it going to do? How are you going to do it? So there's, there's a thousand questions and more that you can ask to shape and direct and guide the vision and direction of the business until it actually comes out and does what it does. So the point is that everything that exists, everything that becomes, that everything that's made in this world begins in a place of vision that is beyond, that is, that is much more abstract than the final concrete action. So Kabbalah compares, it's not even a comparison, it's literally what it is, but the four worlds that Kabbalah speaks of are really four stages, four primary stages in taking something from a vision level and bringing it out into action. So the highest level is vision. The highest level is vision where, you know, you have a vision, and, and I should probably clarify, the vision that we're talking about now is not a clear vision. It's, it's almost like a very vague vision which might not be what we say in today's you know, business terminology today, what a vision is. A vision usually means a clear, con almost concrete vision. But this is not a concrete vision. In Kabbalah, the vision of Atzilut, of the highest realm, is an abstract, undefined, right, unarticulated even to oneself vision. It's kind of like seeing something, but not knowing what we see. It's kind of like what we... Emanation. That's... That's what the world of Atzilut is called, emanation. Okay. So, yeah, so I, emanation I have a question. Like yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, Mariana, go ahead. Yeah. Um, if, if I love that topic, and I have a question that if we, all of us are like creative human being, and um, when you say that the person is an artist, for example, there is something that in the Kabbalah, because it's, it's all my question, all my years. <laughs> You're saying why are some people more artistic than others, perhaps? No, when, when you assume that you are an artist, yeah. if, you, if you understand that everybody has the, the, like, the potential uh, right. or when, when you say, because 
because you go to study and you say like like you are an artist because you you study but if you born with the capacity with the things with with everything you born like an artist yeah 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 absolutely 100% in other words what makes a person believe that they're not an artist is a false narrative right that's a, that's not true because everyone has that capacity correct it's just some people didn't believe the person that told them that they weren't an artist and they, they trusted themselves. You look at, and the best way to understand this is you look at children. You give them a cardboard box, right? And suddenly it's a spaceship, it's a house, it's, uh, it's and it, there's so much creative play. Children, you put them, one of the, one of the and, and we know this with child development, one of the challenges, one of the problems that we created over the years is creating, um, play structures for kids that are very concretized and defined, as opposed to more abstract and creative. So now the trend is to reverse that and to give kids things that are a little bit more undefined so that they can create the definition. Why should parents tell the kid, oh, here's an actual spaceship looking spaceship that you should, you know, that you can climb in. No, 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 keep it more you know, abstract and have the kids create that narrative, have the kids create, you know, the story of what this is. And, and kids will do that. Kids will come up with creativity. I mean, I can't tell you the number with my own kids. I can't tell you the, the I'm, oh, I'm blown away consistently by their creativity. They're like, they're running through, there's like a game, they're running through the house and the kids, are, I'm like, what are you guys playing? And, and you would think the game is something like, I don't know, tag or something, like something, you know. It's a very complex game that they've come up. I'm like, who came up with this game? It's like, well, we came up with it. It's amazing. There's creativity. So it's not only manifest in a brush, you know, paintbrush on, on a canvas, but we're all artists because we're all creative. And I think one of the, one of the disservices that we do to ourselves is categorizing, you know, people as artists or not artists. And one of, the, I, one of the big, big, big messages of Kabbalah is that we all have that creative juice inside. And I think that's what you're saying. We all have that creativity. And when we recognize that, then we can, it's, it's actually very liberating. It's very freeing. It's almost like we need someone sometimes to give us permission. Some of us, you know, need someone or want someone to give us permission to be an artist. One. No worries. Sure. Right? Because we feel like otherwise, you know, who am I to be an artist? Right? Who am I to, um, to express creativity? But the truth is, who are we not to? Right? We have that creativity inside of us. Who are we to hold it back from the world? I was sharing this yesterday in another, another setting. You know, some of you may know this, that I've done a lot of writing. Um, I've published books and, and have edited a lot of things. And, and I'll tell you straight up, it was the inspiration of, I mean, there's a, a lot, of, lot of factors and a lot of people and a lot of, you know, things coming together. But there's, there's one person who I always give a lot of credit to. My 11th, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I went to high school through 11th grade. They didn't have a 12th grade. Through 11th grade in Pittsburgh in the yeshiva. The yeshiva in Pittsburgh had both, you know, a, a very strong Judaics program and a very strong, you know, English you know, general studies program. And we had a teacher in 11th, I think maybe 10th and 11th grade. His name was Mr. I think Demensik. I think that was his name. And he was an incredibly 
positive um, influence for my writing. He was like, you know, he encouraged me and he guided me and whatever it is. And honestly, just confession time, I've never told him thank you. I should probably track him down and, uh, and say, oh, yeah, I shared this yesterday. Yeah, good morning. So it's, um, you know, sometimes you need someone in your life that says, you got this, like, or you're good at it. This is, can you imagine someone who never got that positive encouragement, but had this potential and then never developed it because, I don't know, no one ever told me to develop it. No one ever encouraged me. Versus the person, could be the same potential, who got encouraged or the right things happened to happen. So maybe Kabbalah is telling, and I love how you said this, Mariana, maybe Kabbalah is reminding us that even if no one ever told us that you're an artist, no one ever said you're creative, wow, that's amazing, you should really focus on that. Maybe no one ever said that to us. Kabbalah says, you have this, now focus on it, try it, focus on it. Try it out, try it out. You might be good at it, Not, you might be good, you have this. Everyone's an artist, everyone's an artist. We had, um, this is going back a year and a half. Like, you know, like height of pandemic, Everyone's at home, you know, no one's going outside. We had an artist from Toronto. Her name was Tanya Zbili. Yeah, we did um, a Western Wall thing. Not, not this one. Tanya Zbili, young artist, uh, Jewish artist from Toronto. And she, she did, you know, before the pandemic, she did, she led workshops and whatever it is. And now pandemic time, so she was doing virtual workshops. So I saw that, I, saw, I happened to see somewhere that uh, she was advertising something. So I contacted her, I emailed her. And I said, hey, would you do something for our community? He said, sure. And, um, and I, we put it out there. And some of you may remember the emails that went out. Some of you, I think, participated in it. And um, it was amazing. It was great. We, we, had, we put together here in, in, in this office, we put together um, kits for everyone that signed up. You got canvas and the paints and the brushes and maybe a little apron situation and everything that you needed. And then there was a Zoom link and, and everyone had their kit and had their Zoom. And, she led painting. And I don't, so I'm, again, more confession. I don't consider myself an artist. Now, it doesn't mean I don't think of creativity, but like an artist, like paint on canvas, it's not something that I've, that I've um, you know, expressed a lot. Although I will tell you, my grandfather, blessed memory, was a sofa, a scribe. He got, he got into that because he was an artist. And he used to make the most beautiful hand-drawn ketubot, you know, like marriage... Um, those, but like now, nowadays you kind of buy, many people like, you buy some, an artistic thing and they just, you know, they change the wording and everything in the middle. But he would, he would take like these big, um, not canvases, but like um, whatever, paper. I don't even know the right terminology. <laughs> not a big sheet of paper, but like a big, uh, like with the nice material. And he would, for months, he would work on this, you know, painting birds and flowers and skies and just, it just gorgeous, everything. And, he also, and then he did the lettering because he was a, a scribe. So he did the Hebrew lettering. He did the art. So nowadays you get, you know, you have an artist, but they don't do the lettering. The lettering, they don't do the art, whatever it is. But he did everything A to Z. Gold, he used to use gold paint and everything. I can't even describe. And I always, you know, my narrative was, I'm, okay, but I'm not an artist. Why? I mean, really, just incidentally, because I never really, never tried. I'm not saying that that art workshop you know, changed my life, and now I'm painting in a studio every, every week. 
I'm not saying I'm not. No, but I, no, I'm, I'm not. But <laughs> I am saying that. Um, but it did kind of open up a possibility of understanding how to express creativity through through paint on canvas. And I also became a jewelry maker. Exactly. Yeah. That the thing is that. To our eyes in the world, like painting, it's like the permission. But there's so many techniques, like painting and drawing. I I create one that is is you you make your paper and you make and everybody can do that. Right. And because of that, I create because um, after that you understand that you are able to really create something. And the next right. step. It's to start drawing and painting. And You're saying there's a, there's a way, there's a first step to open up the possibility. And then, yeah, that's, and that's important. And I think that that is something that um, is a critical piece, ought to be a very critical piece of education and parenting and guiding and mentoring. Because I feel like the children, as children, we started off very creative. And then it got rigid. It got very concretized. It's like, okay, here's how you sit behind the desk, and this is how you're going to learn, and this is what this means. And, you know, and I think the trend today now is to reverse that and to open it up a little bit. And, and it, look, the first power of the human being is Chachma. Chachma is creative intelligence. It's not Bina. Bina is boxed in analytical. The first, the first power of a person, the first koach nefesh, soul power, is chachma creativity. The first world, which is why we're talking about this today, right? The first world is abstract, God's creative energy before it's a world, right? Before it's this, whatever, like look around, whatever your space is, before it's this, right? This physical stuff, it started off as super abstract, super creative. At that point, it could have become anything. It became this, but at that stage, it's so creative. So I think to not, let's speak in the positive, to encourage that and to really give a platform. And I love, Mariana, what you said about you know, giving people, um, adults, et cetera, children, a medium that is very accessible, right? Everyone can do this. Everyone can do this. Like the jewelry making as well. Like everyone can, can do this. Step in and start expressing yourself. It's so beautiful to opening up parts of our personality that are really important. And it could be, by the way, with cooking, it could be with music, art, um, sh physical, physical movement, dance, right? Anything creative is amazing, yeah. Um, I was gonna say, as a teacher, what I've noticed is that some students, and very few, have a very strong internal locus of control. They know who they are, they, they know what they need to do, <clears throat> and it's like they're given the message before, and they, they can go that direction. Most students, like, they have these emerging gifts and talents, and they need to kind of be told in right. some sense. And I don't exactly understand why, but it's almost like they need to hear from the outside. And I think that for adults, too, if you think about it. They have to, you have, someone has to tell you from Give the permission. Outside. You are and what, you, right. what your gifts are. Can I share that with everybody in case they didn't hear that? So Susan said that in dealing with children in a classroom, so there are, there's, a, there's a small number of, a small percentage of children that have a very strong sense 
of who they are and what their talents are and are you know, driven to, to develop their talents. But most children and adults as well almost need someone else to tell them, you're an artist, you're a musician, you're good at this, you're good at, this, you're good at yeah. that. Like, like, in my, like in my to confirm it. Like you almost need someone else to confirm that, to really believe it. You know what that reminds me of? I, yeah, why, why do we need someone else to tell us that? I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm sure that's discussed somewhere and maybe it'll come up. But it reminds me of another parallel of this. It's, you, you ever drive down the street and then there's like that sign that says your speed is? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it's like, it's got a radar and it, and it just, it reads your speed and it's like, oh, your speed is 40. It's like a, a 35 zone and your speed is 42, your speed is 45. And you're like, oh, I think I'm going a little bit fast, right? And they, studies have shown that that sign is like exponentially more effective in getting people to slow down than a sign that says speed limit 35. Yeah. Oh. The, the speed limit 35 sign is like we ignore it all the time. But the one that gives us feedback, the one that holds up a mirror to ourselves, the comfort. Now, the, here's, the, here's the question. So that sign told me I'm going 45. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like, let me slow down. But one second. I have another digital display in front of me that also tells me I'm going 45, and it's the one on my dashboard. So why don't I slow down when I see it on my car speedometer? You with me in the question? Like, I could look right here, on my, right in front of my, constantly, I don't need to wait for a sign. I could see it says 45, I'm not gonna slow down. But when that says 45, suddenly I slow down. Why? Because that feels more objective. Because that feels like Others recognize that within me. Others can see 45. Okay, I got to slow down. Now it's, now it's real. So for some reason, when it's, when, it's, when it's only inside of us, maybe we don't believe it. We don't trust, we don't trust it as much. Families are so important, too. It's very common for, uh, you know, if a father and mother are very talented in math and analytical stuff, they reinforce that, whether consciously or unconsciously, to the kids. And yes, of course, there may be another child in the family who is artistic or musical or whatever, but the reinforcement comes from the things that affirm the parents. So, so you're saying that, so I'm just going to repeat it. So what Ina's saying is that sometimes you'll have this with parents that are you know, talented in a certain area that they'll encourage their children in that area. I would say sometimes you have it the opposite, mm-hmm. that maybe they could be judgmental of the right. ch- because of just personality, and then the child's like, well, I'll never be on that level, and then go the other way, right? Even if they are talented in that area, but just the, the way the communication was gone. So that could be a double-edged sword, actually. Um, but it's fascinating. I think this core idea is fascinating that we have these gifts. We all have chachma, right? The world is created. The, the, this, all of this begins with the world of atzil, the world of emanation, right? That world of abstract, unformed, undefined energy that really could go any number of ways. And, and that's m- reflected in our capacity to also have that ability to be, you know, creative and, and, and open and, and non, non-defined. And yet, we almost need sometimes, some of us sometimes need someone else to say, hey, you know, like in my case, I'll just use my personal example, hey, you're a good writer. You know, work on that, focus on that, and let me work with you on that to develop that. And then, you know, you go into life. Again, I, I'm just literally speaking about myself. You know, I went into the next stage of my life believing that I was a good writer, believing that I had that talent, believing that that's something that I can really develop and whatever. And it's become a big part of my life. 
I'm constantly writing, even if I'm not publishing anything. Like every class, like I can't say every class, but a lot of classes that I teach, I write up almost word for word of the class. I don't know if you know this. You probably don't know this, but if you've ever seen my notes in a, in a live class, like a JLI class, I'll have nine pages of notes. Rewriting, rewriting the class for myself in my own words. And happens to be that I use that and uh, I could teach a class that I taught 10 years ago, pull out my notes, I can prepare for five minutes and be ready to teach that class. I, and that's something also I share with others, like this, this repackaging of things. Anyway, my point is that it's, sometimes you need this. You need someone to open up this possibility. I will say something else. There are trends in art. Now, here's a caveat and here's a disclaimer before I, before I go into the next point. And that is that I'm not, well, that's it, I'm not an artist. All right, let's, let's backtrack on that narrative. I am not an expert in kind of the history of art and, you know, all, all those fine details. That is, you know, there's certainly individuals either here or elsewhere that, are, that, that know this cold. And I'm, I may be misspeaking, but my understanding in general is that for a long time art was very um, realistic. Literal. Literal. And that's, a, that's a good word. Art was very literal. For many centuries, art was like if you were... It took the place of the, of the camera. Yeah, it took the place of a photograph, exactly. So instead of, because they didn't have cameras, so if you were painting or creating a sculpture, it was of a person or of a scene. It was very literal. And then kind of as, I don't know, life went on, years went on, and I don't know when and who and what genre it's called specifically, but I'll just use some general terms. Um, you know, things got a little bit more abstract. So instead of depicting, you know, a person sitting there, you know, and looking, you know, into the, into the scene, you now have jagged edges. You now have fluid lines. You now have, it's a little bit more abstract. It's more conceptual. And I think there's something beautiful about that. What's beautiful about that is that we're tapping into, in the, in the process of art, see if art is only concrete, that means we're taking the abstract and limiting it to the concrete. But keeping the abstract abstract is tuning into that space in a more direct way. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? Right, in other words, the creative, the creative capacity that we have is not concrete. So we can take that creativity and recreate something concrete or take that creativity and almost keep it in its space. I've talked about this before. I believe, again, I'm not an expert, but I believe that the, with the advent of Kabbalah, as Kabbalah comes more into, um, you know, and this happened around the 1800s, as it comes more into the world in a much more uh, um, prevalent way, widespread way, things change. Music styles change, art styles, artistic styles change. Things change and evolve and become a little bit more abstract and open because we now have the tools to talk about the abstract, not in the concrete, but in the abstract itself. Does that make sense? Right? So we're now able to talk about a little bit more of the, the pure realm in the pure realm itself without making it, we can talk about the concept in the concept and not in the analogy, almost. That's one of the gifts that Kabbalah gives us. Literally, we're talking about not how God created the world, but how God starts off with the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation. Now, let's focus on emanation. And now we're not thinking about God vis-a-vis -a, -vis a table. 
We're talking about God vis-a-vis -a, -vis a vision of a table or a pre-table vision that could be anything. And now it gets us thinking in abstract terms. And this is now reflected in, in, in our modalities. So somebody, you know, you walk into an art gallery and somebody, you know, puts like a, uh, you know, uh, you know, abstract art. There's abstract art on the wall. And you're like, well, what is this? This is an artist who is tapping into something that's not yet concrete. It's not a tree. It's not a tree, and that's okay. It's not a tree. This is like a, a colors and a state prior to a tree, if that makes any sense. To me, it makes sense. Yeah. I was just going to add that you know, we can list the negativities of, of social media, but if you go onto Instagram, you can see uh, people's art from all over the world. Um, you can follow extreme sports and see like, all the ways that the bodies can move. And it gives us an idea of just all the different expressions that um, are being created. And I think it's fascinating that we have access to that now. Agreed. Yeah. hundred percent agreed. I think that social media and other, uh, and other type of media give us an incredible way of, of, of accessing other types of, other types of realities other types of mediums and expression than art. Now, it also can create some, some negativity and challenges, certainly. Right? It can create um, a sense of I'm, I'm less than if I don't have that, if I don't look like that, if I don't do that. Right? But it also opens up possibilities. It opens up incredible possibilities. Um, okay, any other questions or comments on? So, yeah, yeah. The four realms, they're successive, I think you said, right? So they're not simultaneous. Correct. I mean, they exist within God's, within God's reality. Time doesn't really have the rigidity that it has for us. So let me just repeat the question. So Don is asking these four realms, which we haven't yet fully, fully um, articulated. I just gave you like general concepts of it so far. But like these four realms, do they exist in succession? The answer is yes. Do they exist chronologically with God? Like first there was this, then there was that. I mean, we could say that, but then we're limiting God to a very linear process, which could be true from our perspective, um, but is not 100% the most accurate thing we could say, if that makes sense. In other words, for our purposes, we'll speak about it in a linear fashion. But just know that with God, linear could also happen simultaneously. Infinite number of combinations. I mean, right, if we look at it as a project. 100%. 100%. When you think about us, we also have infinite possibilities. Like, I mean, almost infinite. Uh, somebody says, you know, I want to start a, a business. I want to be an entrepreneur. How many opportunities are there? <laughs> it's unlimited. It's literally unlimited. It's like the entrepreneur, what the idea could be creating, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if we have to, like, come up with, an, with, a, with a wild idea, but, like, you can come up with any idea. Any number of ideas could be, could be, um, could we come up with? So to, to articulate what these four worlds are, again, in Hebrew, they are Atzilut, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. So we have in the, the translation in English is emanation, creation, formation, and action. What that means for us, it's kind of like vision is number one. Vision. Then you have... You know, after vision, you would have, I don't, know, I don't know if there are good words in English that like, one word in English that encapsulates these things, but like, you have the vision, and then you have, I would say, a more defined version of that vision, and then it's more defined, 
This is not, it's not um, helpful, I'm sure, but more defined, and then it's concretized, right? So, you know, for example, let's say you have a desire. One, another example that's used in Kabbalah is building a house. You have a desire to build a house. So you, you want to um, create, a, build a home. So step number one is the desire to, the desire to, um, <coughs> to build a home. Give me a second. One is the desire to build a home. Now, at that stage, the home could look like anything. What does it look like? Where is it? It's totally undefined. Then you have something a little bit more concrete, a little bit more, a little bit more um, defined. So I want the home to be in this neighborhood and to look kind of like this. And then you flesh it out a little bit more. So what exactly? What's your budget? How is it going to look? And who's going to build it? And, and, and there's a process. And it's not just four steps. The process is a number of steps, hundreds of steps from Design, from the, the initial thought, the initial thought of like, oh, I want to build a house. From that initial thought to the house is built, there are thousands of steps along the way. Literally thousands of steps. But in general, Kabbalah speaks of four, four successive categories. So what's, what's powerful about this is that it explains so much about how we work. right? It explains so much about how human nature operates. How our... Um, you know, how our creativity becomes manifest, how our ideas, our vision, dreams can become actualized. But it also explains how the world unfolds. And Donna, you and I were speaking about before the class, you know, so how, how do we go from pure blessings on a spiritual level to blessings that are actualized in our lives? How do we manifest, if you will, like the, the potential? And that, that occurs along the continuum of four. It occurs along this path of step one, step two, step three, step four. Each point, each stage has a checkpoint. And at each stage, the flow has to continue into the next stage to become more realized. So getting back to my example of a house. Imagine you have this initial stirring to build a house. Like, I want to build a home. But then let's say you shut it down for whatever reason. Like, oh, you know what? I can't find a place or there's, you know, there's, no, there's no land available, there's no property available, or I don't have the money for it. And so then it just, it just, it just get, the idea gets stopped or killed in, in a vision state. Like I, I, I wanted it, I could almost like, I had a concept of, of what it might be, a theoretical concept, but that's where it remained. It remained in an abstract vision. I mean, how many times do ideas end up as ideas and never become realized? All the time. Right? How many, we have all great ideas all the time that never make it past the idea stage. So whether it's stage one, that it never went past, or maybe it went to stage two, it became a little bit more, like we started drawing it out even, but that's where it ended. Either way, if it doesn't become actualized, it, it, it so to speak, died or remained in a vision state. Getting back to our conversation that you mentioned before and that we've been talking about the last few weeks about spiritual energy. So spiritual energy begins on high. All, spirit, all energy begins in a spiritual place that then hopefully unfolds and, and, and becomes manifest in successive levels until it reaches this world. So anything that hits us originates over there. I call this the, the, um, the rule of revert. Uh, the, 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 I should know what I call it, right? I call this the mystical law of gravity, the Kabbalistic law of gravity maybe the reverse law of gravity. And that is, if it's down here, it came from up there. Right? Anything that's down here originated up there. That's, that's the way it is. 
right? So like the, the rule of gravity is what's up must come down. In Kabbalah, it's what's down must have come from what was up. So nothing, here's the rule, nothing begins here. Nothing begins on this, on our physical plane of existence. Nothing just begins. It's not that kam nimtza kam haya, that here it is and here it always was. No, 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 no. That's a big mistake. If it's here, it originates somewhere else on another level of existence. So like even when we study Torah, it's like you can study the, the stories of Torah, the laws of Torah, but here's, here's, here's what we know. Everything that we read about in Torah has a spiritual source, has a spiritual inflection, has a spiritual root of the story. So, you know, you read about, you know, we had a Torah studies class Wednesday night. We talked about the red heifer. So it's, it's a practical mitzvah. Someone gets a, a level of impurity, and there's a ritual that has to be done. Okay, that's the concrete. That's the practical. That's... That's um, as it became manifest in this world. But the same concept existed in a higher world as well. And there it's not an actual red heifer. And it's not actual ashes. And it's not real water. And it's not a person, a physical body, who touched a dead body. That's not what it is in a higher, uh, higher realm. It's a different conversation. It's like the concept of one plus one equals two. So you want to sh show it to a child. So you take two apples. And you show them one apple and another apple. One plus one. How many apples? Two apples. Great. One plus one, one plus one equals two is not apples. It's not what it is. It's a concept. Right? And if we think the whole, the totality of one plus one is two is apples, then we're stuck. We're stuck here. The red heifer is not just, not just a person who's impure. You take an animal, you get the ashes, you mix it with water, you sprinkle it on the person. That's not the extent of the red heifer. That's apples. That's not the red heifer. The red heifer is a concept that also has a manifestation. I'm not trying to diminish the manifestation. That's a very important piece of Torah. But Torah exists, the Shalah writes. You know, many people have believed that Torah speaks down here and alludes to spiritual phenomena. But the Shalah writes the other way. The Torah speaks to spiritual concepts and only alludes, only hints to our reality. But just we don't see it. Because what we see is, we see the concrete. We don't see the abstract, at least immediately. We have to have the right lenses, the right glasses, the right tools to articulate that. I mean, even think about the, the strides of, 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 of understanding the human being, psychological strides. How well we understand human beings now. Much better than we did not that long ago, a few years ago. We understand people more because we've built out a language and tools for speaking, to, to, for speaking about those elements of a human being that we did not, we were not able to articulate. So, and by the way, Kabbalah would say that none of this is by accident. With the explosion of spiritual wisdom comes an explosion of these deeper explorations. So, you know, when does Freud emerge? When does psych, the, the, the father modern psychoanalysis emerge? Around the same time. Right? The advent of Kabbalah. It's the mid-1800s. That's when the Industrial Revolution takes place. That's when art and music, technology and science and human psychology, that's all of these fields explode around the same time. All discussed thousands of years prior by the Zohar. The Zohar says in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, that's when... The, the, the wisdom, the lower wisdom and the upper wisdom will explode. It uses the, the it, 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 it's based on, this prediction, so to speak, is based on the story of the flood. 
Noah's flood, right? So it says with the, with the flood that the waters came from below and from above. In what year? The 600th year of Noah's life. So the Zara says, in the 600th year of the 6th millennium, right, in the year 5600, which is 1840, this is, again, 2,000 years ago, it was writing this, it says there will be an explosion of wisdom from above, like the, the heaven, the rain will come from, from above, and as well as from below, earthly wisdom and divine wisdom will converge, or will, I don't know, converge, but will, will, they, they will both be you know, pouring forth. Like the heavens open up, the earth opens up, and, and, and things that we've never seen before. And we see it, an acceleration of human wisdom and creativity and, 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 and productivity like never before. It's almost like you know, the world was operating on like this type of, type of level, like almost flat, like maybe a little bit of, uh, and then it just spikes, it goes up exponentially. So what's the point? The point is that everything exists. The law of Kabbalistic gravity is what's here has a higher source. If it's here, it originates from above. And the way it originates above is still abstract. And on that level, it can stop. It can get frozen. Again, how many ideas do we all have that never get put into practice? It happens all the time. We have all these great ideas. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Did we do it? Not yet. It's still, it's still pending. So it's possible, and here's the big idea, it's possible that as God envisions blessings and energy for us, that it could get stopped or frozen in one of those conceptual levels and not manifest itself into our physical reality. The, e the easiest way to understand this, perhaps, is the old garden hose analogy. Straight-up garden hose. This happened to me recently. I needed to, to spray something, and I open up. There's a garden hose attached. I open up the thing, right? Open up the nozzle. Yeah, well, the, the, the turn thing, the nozzle, whatever, the spigot, whatever it's called. And then I took the hose, and I sprayed the, the, the sprayer thing. Nothing. Nothing. I'm like, what's going on? Doesn't work. You know the answer, obviously, right? The, well, no, no. No, the answer is that the, the, the hose was twisted in such a way that it was, it was twisted a little too much, and the water wasn't able to go through. So what do you have to do? You have to open up the line. I mean, not open up, right? You have to, like, you have to, it. Uh, yeah, I have to unkink it. You have to get out that, that bend that's preventing the water to go through. You have to open up the channel. When you open up the channel, when there's a clear path opening, it's like plumbing is such a simple concept. I'm not saying it's an easy job. It's a simple, con the concept is simple, Right? Clear the pipes. Conceptually, it's very simple. If you have an open pipe, the water's going to go through. If the water's not, it's not like, if the water's not going through, there's an obstruction. So here's the point. If God has a vision for us, if God has a spiritual, I don't mean like God wants us to be, you know, a righteous. When God wants to send us blessings, God has a vision for the blessings in our lives. If that's not reaching us, it means that somewhere along the way, and we have four general checkpoints at the four worlds, right? Somewhere along the way, it got stuck. So the question is, how do we open up? What can we do on our end to open up the channels? Now, one might say it's not in our control, but Kabbalah says it actually is in our control. It actually is. There are things that we can do to open up the channels to make ourselves more receptive, more of a keli, more of an open vessel to receive the blessings. 
obviously what we're talking about here is spiritual work. It's not like the physical, a physical work also. You have to give a physical channel. But that's only on the last level. Like the last level in our world, you have to actually have the cup to catch the cash. To catch, yeah, I said that right. To catch the coins. You have to have a physical container to catch the money. That's on this level. But how do you bring down the blessings in the higher worlds? Not by creating more cups. You with me on this? Going to work is creating a cup. Investing time and energy and brain power into work is creating a more elaborate cup. But that only works on the lowest level. That's to catch it once it's here. Once it's in this realm, to catch it here. But how do you bring it down the other, the other rungs so it doesn't stop in Atzil? How do you get it from Atzil to Bria, from emanation to creation? Not by a cup. That's where spiritual focus happens. That's where the spiritual work happens. By, cre- by creating an open vessel to channel God's blessings into our space. So what we want to do is basically, maybe another name for this class is spiritual plumbing. <laughs> spiritual plumbing. How do we open up the pipes? That's the question. Are you going to give us like, techniques to how? Is it prayer meditation? Is it yes. simple? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, I wouldn't say simple, but that's what it, I mean, there's not, no, I'm not going to pull out some magical thing that we've never heard of before. Like, okay. oh, yeah, here's a new device. You push it. No, I'm right. It's not, it's not. Yes, it's, it's about aligning ourselves with the source so that we down here are aligned, so that the, our pipeline is open straight to the source. And yes, that happens through prayer and meditation and, and study, Torah study, and doing mitzvahs, doing good deeds. That's what opens up the pipes. There's nothing else. If anybody tells you that Judaism has another, you know, secret thing, like you got to buy this water or sprinkle this, if there's a, se- a secret thing that, that costs money, trust me, someone just made that up to make money. It's not, there's not, there's, it's not a thing. There's nothing that you need to, it's straight up. It's prayer, it's davening, it's meditating, it's studying, and it's doing mitzvahs. That's, that's what Judaism is, and that's at the core of, of our belief of what opens up the channels. There's nothing, there's no, um, it's, there's no hocus pocus magic. It's straight up aligning ourselves with the source. In other words, if the source is, is divine, is God, then it's how open and receptive am I to God and to, the, to these blessings from God. Also, God only, for everyone, gives specific blessings. So we don't know up there what might be destined in any event, regardless of potential blockages. Correct. Correct. So we'll, we'll speak about that, about redirecting it in different areas. We'll speak about that a little bit later. But right, the, the, today's discussion is more, is, is, is more focused on the idea of the spiritual plumbing. It's about opening up the pipes straight to the source. And I, I want to share one other detail about this that I think is very relevant. The more physical vessels we make, right? The more where our heads are in business and trying to figure out, again, that's a cup that's necessary. Once we reach our realm, a concretized realm needs concretized vessels. But you know what the challenge with that is? That we will, that will invest our entire focus on the physical vessel and not only neglect the spiritual, the spiritual plumbing, not only neglect it, but that actually blocks the pipes. Why? Because my belief that I create my own blessings or my hard work creates wealth, that belief is in contradiction to the belief that it comes from God. Are you with me? So that is essentially me putting up a a blocker, putting up a, uh, a stopper, 
a drain stopper up, up there and saying, God, I don't need you. I got this. And that may work for a certain amount of time to get whatever was, but that's not a long, that's not long, uh, viable long term. And that's really what this is about. It's about recognizing that all of the, um, the, the work that we do and all of the efforts that we make to earn a living, it takes up a very big part of our lives and it's very necessary because we do live in a physical world and we have to make that physical vessel. But we have to remember at the same time that this is but the last, the final step, the final leg of a very long journey. And if we neglect the first part of that journey, then it only serves to, to, um, to undermine what we're actually trying to achieve. Right? We're not going to get what we want if we only focus on that last leg. Because what about the previous leg? It's like, imagine you're creating a relay race team and you have, you know, you have four people on your relay race team and only the last one can run. I mean, maybe it is a good example because if he's really fast enough or she's fast enough, maybe they could still win the race. But like, all right, whatever. But I think the better example is the drain. If you're blocking, if you block the drain up there, right, then, I mean, I block, not the drain. If you block the, the pipe up there, then nothing's going to come through. So that's really, that's really the core of this. So let's jump inside. Let's, let's read some of this text inside because it's really beautiful. This is discourse number 19. Um, Susan, do you have a, oh, you have the book. Does everyone have the copy? It's page 272 in the book. Um, I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to read this. Um, as always, the language here is Kabbalistic. I'm going to do my best to, to translate it, not only translate it into English, because it already is in English, but to translate the concepts. Um, but just know that the, the, um, the context is what I'm looking for. The context here is um, what happens on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's the context. The context here is what happens on the high holidays, where we begin the process of the flow from above to below. That process of the energy and the blessings coming down begins, but it begins in a very pure state, a very undefined state. All right, let's jump in, and uh, I'm going to share my screen right now. All right. Chapter 1, Discourse 19, Chapter 1, the Ni'ilah operation. Ni'ilah, of course, is the final, the fifth and final prayer of Yom Kippur. The Ni'ilah seal. This is something that Kabbalah speaks about, the seal of Ni'ilah, like a, like a seal, like um, you know, a stamp seal. Has the function of ensuring that the general beneficence elicited into the sphere of Malchut, that means the blessings that are, that are starting to flow into the lowest point of the world of Atzilut, attains its destined goal and to each individual. In other words, the Ni'ilah seal is trying to make sure that, the, that this movement of energy keeps on going until it reaches us. It also provides the general protection to prevent the nurture of the externals from the beneficence that flows. In other words, let me just translate that. It also, the seal of Ni'ilah also helps to ensure that the, the blessing, the flow of energy that hits us should not also then leak into other places that we don't want it to leak into. So for example, it's kind of like fraud protection. Yeah? Fraud protection? It's like you're buying checks online. Anybody buy checks online? Or is that just me? Yeah, they have like these, yeah. you buy checks online, checks unlimited or whatever it is. Then you, they always, they always, it's like 20 bucks for like 400 checks. It's like, great. It's fantastic. I don't use checks that often, but if I do, I know a cheap way to get checks over here. Right? So super, super inexpensive. But then they hit you up with the extras. It's like, oh, do you want the protection? 
Do you want the, you know, the easy lock shield uh, system? Do you want a fraud protection? I'm like, I don't know, do I? But meanwhile, now I'm spending way more money than I, than I intended. I usually decline this stuff, whatever. I'm just saying, but like, it, it, it's kind of like the seal. It's the, it's the fraud protection to make sure that the energy doesn't go to a place that it shouldn't. As I mentioned at the end of last week's class, it's like, okay, we want to earn a lot of money, right? We all want money. We all want the resources that we need, but we don't want that money to have to go to things that are not good, like, God forbid, medical bills or, you know, a, um, you know, a leaky, a leaky, playing a plumber and, 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 and a car repair and all. We don't want that stuff. So it's one thing to get the, ble- to get the money. It's another thing, that, how do we spend it? Yeah? Is it a translation for Nila? I never thought about that. It's just, to me, it's just always been Nila. What is the, the Nila means closing. Closing. Yeah, so it's the closing. Now, it's interesting that you asked that because the Nila prayer typically is understood as the, the gates are closing. Last chance to get in before it closes. Like, you know, last opportunity to get in your petitions before, before the gates close. But Kabbalah actually understands it a little bit differently. The gates are closing and we're on the inside. We're not on the outside trying to shout in the last prayer before the door closes. We're actually on the inside and, and, and connected with God. It's a little bit different. But similar, similar actually. Um, Noel Delet means like the door is closed. Um, but here he says it's like, but seal also has a connotation of something that's closed or something that's sealed, something that's shut. And yeah, affirmed and right. And, 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 and a seal, oh, and look what he says here, the, the next line, this is six lines in, one, two, three, four, five, six. This is similar to the seal placed on an envelope to prevent the unauthorized from reading the letter. I mean, think about, I mean, nowadays we don't have seal. I mean, I guess we do have seals, like the, well, either you lick the thing or, which, or you have the one that you just pull off the strip and it, it seals. But what the seal of an envelope is intended that no one else should read it. So the seal of Ni'ila prevents the externals from benefiting from the flow. The same thing. You don't want an unauthorized recipient to get it. It's like end-to-end encryption. It's like a WhatsApp chat. It's like end-to-end encryption. That's what Ni'ila does. It's end-to-end encryption to make sure that what God intends reaches us and doesn't get read by, you know, doesn't get absconded by any other force, right? A.K.A. government. No, I'm kidding. But no other force should, should get this communication, this flow. Okay, um, this is affected, or this is created, or this is done through the five severities of Attic that Malchot receives an Elah. Again, a lot of Hebrew terms here, mystical terms. There are five severities, five Gvurot. The five Gvurot, five severities, are the elements of focus. We said the hand is divided into five fingers last week, right? Five fingers are like the five severities um, because... Chesed is pure flow. That would be a hand that has no fingers. But when you divide it into fingers, you're now splitting the energy into five different places, which seems to diminish it, but it, it, it actually is a benefit because now we can find motor. We can do things that we couldn't do if we just were wearing a pair of mittens that didn't have, that didn't have the fingers cut out. So there's an advantage of the, what we call the severities or the gvura, the, 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 um, the splitting up of things. In this case, the severities also work to our benefit. Why? Severity sounds harsh, sounds negative, but we're trying to say that it's actually a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because severities make sure that, no, this only goes to the recipient. No one else should read it. That's gvura. Gvura, chesed is, yeah, everyone should read it. Gvura is, sorry, chesed is, it's open for everyone. Gvura is no just for this person, end-to-end encryption. That means saying no to everyone else, which is an idea of a gvura. 
um, through the agency of these severities, the supernal chesed of Atik is apportioned to all beings in the worlds of Biyah, Briya um, creation, formation, and action, they receive from Machot Abatzilat. So again, through the sever- severity support, Gevura supports chesed in this context. So chesed wants to give to this person. But again, it's nebulous, it's general, it could go anywhere. So Gevura focuses. You know what? Let me just give you another way of understanding this based on all of our previous conversations this morning. Um, Chesed is the vision that could go any direction. You need Gvura to focus your vision and create this house, this painting, this building, I said that, this business, right? To create this. Anytime you see, okay, let's, let's, let's start from the end. Any work of art that you see means two things happen. There was a vision, there was a general vision, artistic vision, chesed, chachma, like an open vision, and a lot of gvura, because there's something here that's not something else. It's this and not something else. So the fact that it's this, that it's defined, means that gvura was applied. Because if there was never gvura, you can never actually create. Creation requires a lot of openness, but also focus. It's like, it's the ultimate experience that, that utilizes both. And, and, and in truth, the gvura is not for itself. It's not like, no. It's not, it's not blocking for the sake of blocking. It's blocking or focusing, better, for the sake of creativity. It's gvura for the sake of chesed or chachma. It's, 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 it's focus for the sake of expression. It's not focus for the sake of focusing. It's focusing for the sake of expressing. Okay, let's continue. Let's continue inside. Um, next paragraph. He says, this explains the sage's statement in the Talmud, man's sustenance is determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. What does that mean? The allotment, back inside, the allotment of how much beneficence, that means blessings, the allotment of how much blessing, beneficence, shall flow to each individual is through the five severities. In other words, what determines who gets what? That's a, that's a, that's a, a disciplinary experience. That's, that's discipline. That's, that's gvura. That's not chesed. Chesed is, here's the warehouse. Here's all the stuff. Gvura is, okay, think about an Amazon warehouse, right? Think about an Amazon, or think about any warehouse, Right, that you order from, like you, oh, I put an order through Amazon or through whatever it is. Yeah, I, I ordered something. Great. The fact that you got what you ordered means that Gvura was implemented, right? The fact that you didn't get something else random means that somebody was disciplined to make sure that the person that ordered this got this. Not that. That would be the wrong thing, right? You ordered, um, what'd you order on Amazon? You ordered a tennis racket, yeah? You ordered a tennis racket. You got a tennis racket, Gvura was implemented. Because you know, if it was a free-for-all, you might get a, um, a, a, a thing of salt and not a tennis racket, which would be very unfortunate because you cannot use a container of salt on a tennis court. It's not going to work. Right? So you need Gvura to make sure that the, benefic- the beneficence shall flow for each individual. The, the right thing should go to the right place. Now, on an earlier plane... Let's continue. On an earlier plane, that's an earlier stage, at the higher stage, at a higher stage, the chesed was a generalized light and energy to creation in general. In other words, on the, on, on the earliest state, it was open and general and undefined and just free-flowing. 
through the five severities, through Gvura, the seal, Ne'ilah, the, the, the end of Yom Kippur, two simultaneous effects came about. So two things happened. Number one, first, no stranger shall receive even a bit of this beneficence. In other words, no one else that shouldn't be getting it is getting it. And the beneficence shall attain its intended destination, should go to the recipient. And second, number two, it establishes the allotment that, that shall be issued to every being and every person individually. It's really kind of the same thing almost, but it's, uh, it's just expressed into two different steps. I would really say step one, step two, the other way, but he says it this way. Step one, what do the five severities do? Number one, that it only goes to this person and not someone else. You send an email. Who got the email? The person whose email address is on the email, not someone else, right? So it's going to the recipient, that's number one. Number two, that they are getting what they need to get, and that's the intention. That's what happens. So initially, when God decides to bless the world, right? At Rosh Hashanah, we say, God, give us life, give us parnasa, sustenance, give us all the things that we need. We ask God for the blessings that we need on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Great. God says, yes, I will give, I will invest in this world, I'll invest in mankind, I'll invest in, in life. Great. That level is still chesed, it's pure, it's undefined. Who gets what? Is it going to them? Is it getting misdirected? None of that is yet defined. By the end of Ne'ilah, so we have 10 days, from the beginning of Rosh Hashanah to the end of Ne'ilah is 10 days. By the end of those 10 days, we already have a game plan. Not we. God already has a game plan of who's getting what, and that it's only going, what, what, uh, uh, that it's only getting to that intended recipient and not somewhere else. Let's continue inside what's happening at Ne'ilah. At Ne'ilah, the closing service of Yom Kippur, Malchut of Atzilut, that's the lowest dimension of Atzilut to the highest world. So Atzilut is the highest world. Malchut is the lowest rung of that highest world. Malchut of Atzilut receives, through the five severities of Atik, the light of supernal chesed, determined through the severities for all the worlds of Biyah, those are the next three worlds, and each individual being. So again, by the end of Ne'ilah, or at the time of Ne'ilah, um, already there's a flow of energy that is defined, that is segmented, that is individualized or individuated for each world and each individual being within each world. It's very organized. At that time, though, hold on, at that time, though, the chesed, as it stands in, in Malchot of Atzilut, is still in a state of perfect spirituality. Although it's defined, it's defined on a spiritual level. It's almost like um, I have this, not only do I have a general vision, like I want to build a house, I actually, have, I actually have plans drawn up by an architect. Right? Look at that. I actually have defined plans where the walls go, what it looks like, the dimensions... So let me ask you a question. Hold up those blueprints, right? Hold up the, hold up the plans. Yeah? You have a house? <laughs> you have a house? No, you have a piece of paper. That's what he says. You have the game plan, but it's still a plan. You still don't have the blessings. They're still not actualized. They're still not activated. We don't, God has the plan. No, 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 no. We, we never have the plan. Right. We have the plan. We, we have to be told when we got it already what we got. We don't, we're not given the script, right? We just know what hits us. And sometimes we don't even know what hits us. But there is a plan. The point is what happens at the different stages. So initially, God says, yes, I'm in. But what does that mean? Then that's defined. Okay, here's what it means that I'm in. I'm in this amount for this realm, for this individual being. That, so it's defined. But on that level, it's still perfect spirituality. It's still a blueprint. Again, the difference between, not, I'm, maybe I'm saying the wrong, um, not a blueprint. 
Is it called a blueprint? What, the, arc, the, the plans. What is it called? Yeah. Plans? Blueprint? Blueprint? Blueprint. A blueprint is not a house. It's like Atzilut versus Asiyah. It's the world of emanation versus the world of action. It's a blueprint. It's not a house. You can't live in a blueprint. You can't live in Atzilut. We can't live in Atzilut. It's still the plan. It's still a... It's not, it's not a house. You can't live in a blueprint. You can have blueprints from today. How many blueprints over the course of mankind have been drawn up and never come to fruition? Happens all the time. And I don't only mean for a house, for a business, for a relationship, for anything. I have a blue, I have a plan. Detailed plan. Great. That doesn't mean, mean something, but it doesn't mean that it actually happened. So at Neila, everything's set, right? Kind of. But we don't actually have it yet. It, everything's set in a blueprint, but it's still at silut. That's what he says. I'm just trying to explain the Kabbalah here. At that time, though, the chesed, I'm repeating this line, the chesed as it stands in Malchot of Atzilut is still in a state of perfect spirituality, utterly devoid of any form and characteristic of the beneficence and vitality of the physical realm. It's a blueprint. It's not a house. It's at silut. It's defined energy in at silut. It's not physical energy that we can touch. Just as the vivifying force of our mundane world has no base of comparison with that of Atzilut. Two different realities, two different realms. Now, I really wanted to do a little bit more. I still want to, but I also wanted to before. Um, I want to see if we can do maybe a little bit. A little bit? Uh, four elements? Maybe we should just cap it. All right, maybe we should just cap it. All right. Let's, let's summarize. I feel like if we get into this, it's not going to be satisfying either way because we're going to have tasting some new stuff, but then not getting it, and then it's going to be maybe confusing. So let's, let's pause here for this week. Next week is next week. Please, God, we'll, we'll, we'll get back together again next week, same bad time, same bad channel, and we'll pick this up. But from today's discussion, here's what I'd like you, here's what I'd, I'd be honored if you take away from today's conversation. Number one, that everything here Everything that's a finished product originated as an abstract concept, as a vision or a pre-vision vision. Every work of art, every business, every, everything, everything, every table, anything that exists, physical thing that exists, begins as an idea. And not, as a, and not initially as a very concrete idea. It begins as a pre-idea idea, an idea of an idea almost, or an abstract vision. This is true in everything that we create. It's also true in what God creates. God creates this reality, but this reality is only the end of what God initially intended and envisioned in an abstract way. Um, we also spoke about the power of creativity and the power of you know, understanding what that pre-vision state is like so that we can channel more creativity into our lives and create more things and be more and, 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 and access that because we all have that creativity. It's not just God created or God has that creativity. We have that creativity. We have that, that inner artist. Sometimes we need to give ourselves permission. Sometimes it's good to have a good friend to give us permission or a mentor to give us permission. But we all have that creativity inside of us. We all have that divine creative spark. God created the world. God created all of this. And we were created as co-creators. We also have the ability to create. Then when we got into the, the concept of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Ne'ilah, all of these ideas really now are put to, to, a, to a focused application. 
where it's not just ideas about how things evolve from creative vision to manifestation, but it's literally understanding the process of how the blessings unfold in our lives throughout the cycle of the year or throughout the, the cycle of, of praying for it throughout the year. So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those are the times that we ask God to invest. And on that level, God says, initially God says, yes, I'm investing. How much? And I'm giving you an okay. Yes, I'm in. But what that looks like, how much, and what am I funding specifically, right? right? We want a grant from God. God, we're applying for a grant. God says, yes, I will, I will give you a grant. How much? How much? And, and, and what is it for? TBD, to be determined. Well, when is that determined by God? That's determined at the end of Yom Kippur, by Ne'ilah. Ne'ilah is the closing prayer. At that point, things begin, at least in the higher realms, taking on a structure. Things now, it's not just pure yes, it's not just pure chesed, it's not just pure creative open energy. It's now a little bit defined. It's, okay, this is where it's going to go, this is where it's not going to go, this is what I'm funding, this is not what I'm funding, this is what I'm investing in, not investing in, this is the specific form of what the blessing, of how the blessings should, are going to be, are going to, to what, I, what, what God wants them to, to manifest as. But at that point, there's still no manifestation. And the critical thing to remember is, at that stage, any number of things can happen in between blueprint and ribbon cutting. Any number of things can happen, right? Any number of things can happen. Um, plans can change, and it just, so many things can interrupt between the vision, I have everything written out, and actually living in that house. And the same thing is true above. Going back to plumbing, spiritual plumbing, if there is a block that stops the flow of that, it's, it's on a trajectory. At the end of Yom Kippur, by the end of Yom Kippur, there's a good trajectory going on over here. But if there's a blockage, if there's a block, then it's not going to come down. We were still allocated the blessings, but they never hit our bank account, so to speak. They never hit this physical world. And we created all the blessings, but may, sorry, all the vessels, but maybe when we're creating, when, when creating the vessels, we actually stuffed up, stuffed up the pipes because we said to God, essentially, I don't need you. I don't need that. I got this here. In which case that blessing's not going to come down. That's only one example of why it would get stuck. It gets stuck for any number of reasons. But all of this is going to help us understand why it is that we need to continue to pray and meditate and study and do good deeds throughout the year. And it's not enough that Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we killed it. Like, oh, you should have seen my high holidays. I was all in and I was all focused. And that's great. And that created the initial movement. But, I mean, the water is still, I mean, you're at the sink, right? You opened up that that faucet thing, and you're waiting by your kitchen sink, and the water started flowing, but then somewhere along the way, there might be a block, and you're not getting that water. you got to snake that thing. you got to make sure that the pipes are smooth all the way through. And that's really where the prayers and the meditation and the study and the good deeds on a daily basis come in. That's your daily Drano. <laughs> wow, I'm, going, I'm leaning all in on this plumbing analogy. That's your... I mean, that's, in Kabbalah, that's the, you're talking about spiritual blockages. You just said there's other blockages, though. All types of blockages. I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't overanalyze what I'm saying. But what I mean to there's say a lot is... Of blockages maybe just four I mean, ways to, four types of drainage. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there could be different blockages. Yeah, for sure. There could be that, that we go out of alignment. It could be that circumstances change and that it's no longer the appropriate blessing for the appropriate circumstance. Um, but typically it's on our end. It's not on that end. It's not like God changes his mind. One, is, one feels one is already 
Okay, so then one has to have faith also. Faith is the, faith is the ultimate trainer, right? <laughs> faith is the ultimate trainer. It's easy to believe when everything's flowing. It's harder to believe when things are stuck. So we need faith. We also need to create a vessel. We have to be, we, we can't neglect that, la- that final step either because once the blessings are, once the flow of energy has reached this realm, okay, but now we have to actually catch it. So we need to do the things here that are viable as well. At the same time, we have to have it open on all, all the levels. It's not an easy thing. It's a complicated thing. It's not easy to walk either, right? It's like, you, you ever see a child learning how to walk? It's very complicated. You got to put this foot and then that foot. Forget it. I'm crawling. Like, it's so much easier on the ground. It's complicated. There's a lot of mechanics involved. Nothing different here. It's a lot of spiritual mechanics. But understanding this, the, he, there's one objective here. Ultimately, I'm letting you in on the secret. It's not a secret. There's one objective here. This book is called Overcoming Folly. The folly he's addressing is the folly of my wealth is in my control. That's the folly. The folly of I create my own wealth. That's the folly that he's addressing. To understand why it's a folly, we have an immensely elaborate explanation of how energy flows from above to below. All of this to tell us that there's more than meets the eye. It's not just, I got a good job, I'm making money. There's so much more involved, we have to focus spiritually or or else the flow will dry up. Or the flow is going to go in an area that we don't want it to go. We don't want, who wants to make money and then have to spend it or it goes away in areas that don't make us happy? Then what's the point? We had money but it made us miserable? Why is that, why is that a point? There's no that, that, what, what, there's no kunst to that. Kunst is Yiddish for like trick or game. That's not, a, that's not a thing. So someone wants to be wealthy and miserable? Now what? How did that help? Right? How did that help? The whole thing is to have what we need and be happy. Good. All right. Now we're on the same page here. So it's not just about how much money someone has in the account. It's much more than that. And the premise here is that if we're only focused on the work, it's ultimately not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be happy. It's not going to be sustainable. We have to recognize that this is coming from a higher source and then plug in. If we apply the spiritual draino, again, I'm leaning all into this. If we apply, if we open up the pipes and have that alignment, then we are more likely, nothing's guaranteed, we're more likely to have the blessings that we need, the blessings that we want, and go back to blessings that we need that's directed to us in a healthy way that we can enjoy it. It says in Pirkei Avot, as we conclude, Ezu Asher, who is rich, hasameach bechelko, someone who's happy with their lot. That is really the ultimate. It's not about having, it's not about comparing to anyone else. It's having what we need and being content. And part of that, a big piece of that is being plugged into the source. That helps with the being content with what we have. All right. I'm, we're already getting into some other ideas that we can elaborate on for next time. Next time, by the way, I want to tease this idea. We're going to talk about the four elements. Fire, air, water, and earth. And correlate them, connect them to the four worlds. Atzilut, Bria, Yetzirah, and Asiya. Fire, air, water, earth. All right. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. So what's the, what's the takeaway from today? Takeaway from today is, this week, focus on alignment. Every day, a little prayer, a little meditation, a little study. Some, some acts of good deeds, some charity, some tzedakah. You should know that it, within Jewish tradition, we do all that in the morning. We study a little bit. We meditate on what we study. We give tzedakah, give a little charity, even if it's a few coins, even if it's a nickel in a tzedakah box or in a cup. 
act of giving is, is unleashes incredible openness and, and, and opens the channels. And then, um, wait, we did study, meditation, charity, and then prayer. And then, and then rinse and repeat. If we can do that, we are incredibly aligned. And we make the world a better place also, which is not a bad place many, to be in. How many hours? How many hours? <laughs> it could be as little as 15 minutes. Doesn't have to be too elaborate. Just to, and then build off of that. It, it, we should never create something too big to do. Five minutes. Let it be five minutes. Let it be three minutes. It doesn't matter. No, there's no connection that is too small because it's not qualitative, it's quantitative. It's like, you think about a moment with someone who you love. It's like, doesn't matter how much time you spend with them. Even one second with someone that you love is just an incredibly beautiful experience. So it's not about the time. It's not about the amount of time as much as it, as it is about the quality of the experience. So this week, give, let's give ourselves quality time with things of value. That's, that's the key that I want to I share. And, and the pipes will open up. The channels open up. Unkink that hose. The hose could be a little bit. Open up the hose. Open up the hose. All right, great to see you. And I want to mention, special mention, Dr. Maxi, thank you very much, of course, for sponsoring this season of Kabbalah and Coffee in honor of your mom. May her memory be indeed for a blessing. Thank you all for joining. Um, take a look at the website and emails that are coming out this week. We have, a lot, um, we have some upcoming interesting events. We have, it's not out yet, but we're doing a Passover boot camp. We're also doing a session on Judaism and the environment called Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth. I'm doing it in, in, in conjunction with an organization locally, a Jewish organization that's focused on the environment, and, uh, um, and, and a woman that I know who is very focused in leading that organization. Yes, I am. Thank you, David. I am doing a public Seder. So, okay, let, so let me finish this. So Jewish Wisdom to Heal the Earth, uh, the date is not 100% set. But look for that. It's going to be a really beautiful event connecting Torah, Kabbalah, and environmental consciousness. I'm very excited about that. So that's uh, one announcement. We talked about the Passover boot camp and related to Passover. Yes, um, the Solish family is in town. We are here this year for Passover. Um, and we will be leading the public Seder, the community Seder, first night of Passover, which is going to be a Friday night. Um, I forget the date. It's Friday night. 15th? Oh, April 15th. Right, tax day. April 15th um, at night, Friday night, is the Seder. We're doing it right here at Chabad, um, either here or upstairs, probably down here in this very space. And it is open to everyone. It's going to be a beautiful Seder. We have great food, great entertainment. I'll do some stand-up and some insights as well. And, <laughs> and we'll, we'll Seder like it's Passover. That's how we roll. All right. Good to see you all. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. See you yeah, soon. Bye, everybody. Is all the Passover stuff on the website? Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm doing a